Hello and welcome to Forever Leeds, the new monthly podcast from the alumni and development team at the University of Leeds. I'm Rich Williams, a 2004 graduate in political studies. And I'm Alba Goskova, a journalism student originally from Albania. This podcast is made in Leeds, but it's for the whole alumni community, wherever you are in the world. Not only is it made in Leeds, but alongside myself and Alba, we'll have other current students as well who'll be taking part. I've got to say, Alba, I am very jealous of you because I'm a former student and you're a current student, so you're still getting to live university life. Well, for me, it was it's long done with. What can I say, Rich? It's absolutely great. What have you loved so far about the University of Leeds and especially coming over from a different country as well? Yeah, I mean, Leeds and Yorkshire in general, it's a new place for me, but I love my course. I get to do a bit of theory, a bit of practice, which is amazing. And I love all the student life in Leeds. Best place on the university campus for you? Oh, tough question. I think the union. I get to do a lot of things there, old bar especially. I meet up with my friends there all the time. Can I ask you, what kind of sort of societies and stuff have you been involved in, the stuff outside your course as well? Uh, Well, I do the Griffin, which is the student newspaper, and I'm now an associate for the newspaper. And I do a bit of volleyball and also a bit of rowing. So in each edition of the podcast, we're going to be looking at news of what's happening at the university right now. And we're going to be meeting some notable figures who also know their way around the Riley Smith Hall and the Otley Run as well. In this debut edition, we talk to Kamal Ahmed, former BBC economics editor and observer political editor, now fighting misinformation as the editor-in-chief of journalism startup The News Movement and a Leeds politics graduate from 1990. We'll also hear a fascinating story from the university's past, the Leeds Geography graduate who mapped out an unexplored part of Antarctica. And we'll be talking to some of today's students about what they're getting out of the best days of their lives. Forever Leeds is out every month, so do follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and you'll get every episode as soon as it comes out. And let us know what you think of the podcast by tweeting us at Leeds Alumni. We'd love to hear from you. Well, it's been a tough year for everyone when COVID exposed big weaknesses in the world's health security systems. Now, the University of Leeds has been chosen by the World Health Organization to help fix those weaknesses and prevent another worldwide emergency like coronavirus. Leeds is creating a global strategy for the WHO, and the university is about to be accredited as an official WHO collaboration centre. So what does that mean, and what are the university's experts working on? Well, it's all because of a paper from Professor Garrett W. Brown, Chair of Global Health Policy in Leeds' School of Politics and International Studies, and he's here to tell us about it. Professor Brown, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, it's good to have you. Look, this is this is a huge honour, I'm guessing, really. But what exactly does this partnership mean between the university and the World Health Organisation? Well, there are a number of collaboration centres around the world, some on nutrition, some on other aspects of health, like universal health coverage. Various platforms at the WHO will have collaboration centers, which just sort of act as like a a research mechanism for that particular framework. Um, So there are many of them, but what it does mean is that um, you have to be recognized as producing research or assistance for the WHO that makes a difference and that they can use in in their policy. And that's what we've been chosen to do because we have been delivering research. It takes two years, 
and you have to have a, um, a proven track record to get that. So, Dr. Brown, you recently wrote a paper called COVID-19, Time for a Paradigm Shift. What do you exactly mean by that? Well, the paper highlights sort of four paradigm shifts, and I'll, I'll just focus on probably the two most important, or the ones that they thought were the two most important. First of all, that there's a relationship between strength and health systems and long-term global health security that has been undervalued for the last, I'm going to say, hundreds of years. What I was writing in that, and I've been writing for many years, was that we need to start making links between these concepts. So that was the first paradigm shift. A lot of health systems were just simply unprepared for this. And the way that we design health systems in the West in particular were unprepared for this because we're, we're so fixated on uh, technical proficiencies and efficiencies that we have no adaptation qualities in our, in our healthcare system. And then the other paradigm was that we're over-relying on vaccine discovery and that what we do is we, we focus on surveillance, we get the pathogen, we create a countermeasure, and then we roll it out. But we have nothing on preparedness and nothing on prevention, which, you know, as you know, a, a pound of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The university is writing the WHO's health systems for health security framework. So why was exactly Leeds chosen for this? It doesn't sound like a radical idea, but it, it is a radical idea because it hasn't been on the radar for so long to sort of rethink what we mean by health security. So instead of just surveillance and act, uh, it's much more about prevention and preparedness. And so you need a health system component there. So what Leeds has that that other universities have maybe less of. There's a great number of experts on health security and sort of traditional models of health security and critiquing those models for the last 50 years. And then we have a large group of people working in health systems and marrying those two concepts together and trying to think, okay, well, you have six health system building blocks with core capacities under each six of those. And there's, you know, there can be a hundred core capacities under one of those. Uh, what core capacities we need to enhance our security? How do you finance those? What kind of return on investment? We need, a, we need to design a return on investment calculator like they do in environmental studies to try to see like dollar per dollar, what do we expect long-term in health security gains? And there's, there's some very simple ones. Uh, there's some easy wins out there, but it does require the political will and the investment. And I think the first step is to stop thinking about health as an expenditure on a, on a balance sheet and start to think about health as an investment. That the more you put in now and the more you make strengthened health systems, duh, the more likely it is that you're going to be prepared and able to respond to the next pandemic. Are you going to get it 100% right? No way. Each pandemic's different and in each context it's different. But you'll be that much further along than you were now. In terms of the the crucial weaknesses that you know you look at and say, right, this is what needs to be focused on first, because presumably tackling something like this is possibly never ending and absolutely huge. So, what is the what is the first step for the partnership with the, with the WHO? Well, I think the very first step is to kind of look at existing mechanisms that failed miserably, uh, and there's two out there. So, in, in 2015 at the G7 summit in Germany. Uh, the leaders of the G7 announced that Ebola had been a wake-up call and that we need to fix our systems. And what they created was something called the Pandemic Emergency Financing Facility, the PEF, and it was housed in the World Bank. And it was supposed to be able to pump hundreds of millions of dollars within 72 hours of 
a potential outbreak that threatened to become a pandemic. That was never triggered. And in fact, it has been silently removed from existence. It's no longer around. So we do need something in terms of a pooled financial resource that can allow quick mobilization of funding and, and of course, personnel and expertise to jump on these epidemics before they become pandemics. So that's one. The most obvious uh, fix that we need at the global level is something called the international health regulations. Now, these regulations were put in place and all countries adopt, were supposed to adopt them. And what these regulations do is it just sort of uniformly coordinates various national strategies at the global level. So uh, border monitoring, reporting on travel restrictions, reporting new pathogens uh, when they emerge and letting the WHO know, and then they can warn other countries, they can get the genome, they can spread that and let other people uh, have access to that data so they can start thinking about their own countermeasures and then pooling those resources together. Unfortunately, less than 50% of countries complied with the international health regulations despite signing up to them, including Western countries such as the UK. If we don't have these regulations in place, we're going to see what's happened, which is China delayed its, its announcement that they had found this particular pathogen. Uh, they did not report that upwards to the WHO in a timely fashion. Coordination of travel restrictions between countries did not take place, and we can see the fallout from that. So if you, if you take these basic regulations and people actually comply with them, and you help countries that don't have the money to comply with them comply with them, then we would have been in a much better position than we are now, which is total catch-up. So I know we're not exactly out of this pandemic yet, but how likely is another pandemic and what can we do about it? The answer to that is 100% likely there will be another pandemic within the next 100 years, probably 70% chance within the next 50 years. As population density increases, so we're reaching 10 billion people, as we continue to encroach on natural habitats where various animals we don't usually come in contact with, we now come in greater contact with, so we have zoonotic disease and climate factors as well, and urban density. As these factors increase, you're going to see a, a bigger increase in pandemics. So 100%. How well was actually Britain prepared for the pandemic? I'll give you two answers. Formally on paper, according to the preparedness index, which was an index put together by the WHO that ranked every country in terms of their ability to withstand a shock of a pandemic, Britain came in number two. In terms of actual performance in the face of this pandemic, uh, they rank in the bottom five. My experience with the UK cabinet office, they had a roundtable on, on COVID-19. Uh, early on in the pandemic, I was part of maybe 27 uh, academic experts and, and others. You, you're never quite sure who's in the virtual room. There was no plan as far as we saw. And what they wanted us to do with two hours notice was to look at three different scenarios, the best case scenario, middle scenario, and worst case scenario, and tell them which one was likely based on the evidence. Now, this is in March 2020. With that little time to prepare, and with the evidence base being so low, uh, I'm not sure how, how helpful we were, or we were to them. What we did do is suggest some basic public health measures that would have helped but uh, those weren't implemented. What happened after that first meeting, I was on the panel for a while. I went downstairs to the kitchen and I spoke to my wife and I said, um, we're in big trouble. They have no clue what they're doing. 
And it was very clear to me there was no strategy put in place in advance. They had no national emergency plan like you're supposed to do for the IHRs. They had something on influenza, but nothing on you know other kind of pathogens that could either bacterial or viral that could get into the borders. And the long and short of it is we were completely unprepared, despite the fact that uh, we had been warning about this and the um, intelligence services had been warning about this for the last, you know, at least 35, 40 years. Leeds produces far more than its fair share of movers and shakers. Our graduates are everywhere, making the running in business, the sciences, politics, theater, literature, sport, and media. In every episode of Forever Leads, we'll be talking to someone for whom Leeds was a springboard to a big future. This time, it's a journalist whose career went from the Leeds student newspaper to the Guardian and Observer, and eventually to the job of editorial director of BBC News. Now he's planning to reinvent journalism with a radical new business called the News Movement. But it all started in cramped offices in Leeds. My name is Kamal Ahmed. I was at Leeds University 1987 to 1990, and it was there that I discovered journalism. I have worked at The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Observer, Scotland on Sunday, the BBC, and not to forget my first job in professional journalism, the Lennox Herald in Dumbarton. My mother is from Yorkshire. My father is from Sudan, so I was a real north-south kind of kid, and I grew up in London. But I've always loved Yorkshire and the north, and I suppose it's a weird sort of family thing. I wanted to study politics, and Leeds had a famous, and well, still has a famous politics department. Ralph Miliband was a very famous political academic professor who had really put Leeds on the map, and I was fascinated by the sort of approaches of the left I suppose you'd call it, and Leeds was the place to go. My first impressions were of its size. It had these huge modern buildings, and in that sense, quite awe-inspiring in a way. And it also had, I remember, alongside these very large modern, modernist buildings, it also had sort of rather beautiful areas around the Brotherton Library, and it, it was a real mix of that kind of old and new. I started my second year at Leeds and I'd never really started any of the clubs. I remember doing Freshers Week and I can't remember if I actually joined anything at all. And I was slightly scratching around for something to do. And a friend of mine, a guy called John Rigby, who was on the politics course, he said he'd been down, he'd met these few people and there was this sort of student newspaper, which I must have been unreally seen. And he said, actually, it's really good fun. You should come down. And I thought, well, phew, what journalism? What's that? I didn't really know what it was and I wasn't that interested. I mean, I read, obviously, I read papers and stuff. So I was interested in the outputs of journalism, but I wasn't interested in being a journalist. I, didn't, I wasn't really clear what that was. So I said, yeah, OK, John, I'll come down. So John and I remember went down. The lead student used to be in what was then the Polytechnic and they had an office in the basement of the Polytechnic. And I remember walking in. It was sort of like you'd stumbled into a pub that had been involved in a lock-in for about three weeks and no one had cleaned it up 
there was a small record player, I remember, which endlessly played one or two songs because I think that was all the records they had. A few computers and a few people just putting out this thing called Lead Student. And it was walking through that door and seeing what they were doing, trying to tell students what was going on and have some fun and cover things that were interesting to young people. And suddenly realizing, wow, this is unbelievable. I couldn't believe this sort of thing, you know. And they said, do you want to write something? And because these students, of course, it was all voluntary and you had to do it outside all your studies and everything. As soon as you walked in the door and you could competently put a sentence together, basically you were in. I was asked if I could write something short. I can't remember what the first thing was I did. And then that was published and there was your name, Kamal Ahmed, written out as a byline. And there it was. And I'm sure it was on about page 38. But I was so proud of that moment when I'd written some silly little thing, I don't know, I can't remember what it was, that I really caught the bug. So I thank John Rigby. John Rigby still works at the BBC. And I thank John Rigby to this day for saying to me, have you heard of this thing called Lee Student? You should come down and have a look at it. That conversation set me off in a career which I'm still very proud to be part of 30 plus years later. Leeds definitely changed me as a person. It made me think. It was the first time I was asked what I thought and I had to think about that in a really interesting way. It felt like a real place with energy and a purpose and a real family feel. I'm still lucky enough to be very good friends with friends I made at Leeds and we go walking every year together up in the Lake District. I made great friendships there and I learned a huge amount about how to think and how to have discussions and properly listen to people's arguments and gaining confidence. You had to look after yourself. You know, it was the first time, you know, obviously for most students, you've left home and you had to walk to the supermarket and you had to look after your pennies because it was mostly pennies you had in life. So Leeds absolutely changed me. If it hadn't been for Leeds, I would not be a journalist. I'm very sure of that. And if I had gone to another university, my career would have been very, very different. You felt supported at the place. You don't want to be too, you know, overly saccharine, but you felt to a degree there was a family idea about Leeds and what it was. I have such fond memories of the city. You know, whether you were from Leeds or you were a student coming to Leeds, you felt really part of the city. It was a city when I was there, late 80s, early 90s, which was really finding its feet after some tough decades. You felt you were somewhere which was really going places. I remember we had T-shirts which said Leeds north of Manchester. We were very proud that we weren't Manchester. And we wore these T-shirts with great gust, you know, because we, we were proud to be at Leeds. Leeds, Leeds, Super Leeds. We used to sing it. We were really proud of the city. We were proud of being at a place which was really starting to motor. On a remote and frozen piece of rock on Adelaide Island, Antarctica, 1,860 kilometres south of the Falkland Islands and 1,630 kilometres from the tip of Chile, it's good to be precise, uh, is Britain's largest Antarctic research station. Rothera Station is a hub of research into biology, meteorology, geology and climate change. The temperature ranges from a balmy zero degrees Celsius in summer to a nippy minus 20. And it's named after a Leeds graduate of legend. In fact, the whole of Rotherer Point is named after John Rotherer. Born in Huddersfield, a Leeds geography graduate and the surveyor who mapped out this undiscovered area in 1957. John passed away in April 2021, but thanks to the British Antarctic Survey and Chris Eldon Lee of the BBC, we still have his words. 
current University of Leeds history student Tom Davey pieces together the story of a true polar explorer. A biting, skin-piercing wind. A cold that will freeze your breath as it enters your lungs and a blinding whiteness that begins in the sky and spreads to your feet, making you unsure where the horizon is. These are common descriptions of Antarctica, the world's southernmost continent. Yet, for John Rotherer, it was the beauty and silence of this inhospitable landscape that made a lasting impression. A silence as night... If you're outside at night in the Antarctic on a calm night, especially there's a moon and so on, absolutely so quiet, it's unbelievable. After graduating from the University of Leeds with a degree in geography, John Rotherill was appointed to the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey, the predecessor to the modern-day British Antarctic Survey. From November 1956 to June 1959, he was tasked with surveying and mapping localities which had not yet been travelled to. This was, of course, prior to satellite imaging capabilities in the Antarctic, and so John used triangulation, a system that involved the calculation of the coordinates and elevation of specific points of land, known as trig points, and then had to join these points together in order to create a detailed map of this uncharted territory. It was difficult and manually taxing work, yet often the opposite was true due to weather stopping progress. Too often the typical day was lying in the tent, <laughs> listening to the wind whistling by the canvas and hearing the snow hitting the canvas. And at the end of that period you got very weak. And when you got out to dig out the tents and so on and the dogs and what have you, it was quite an effort to do it to begin with. In addition to uncomfortable living conditions, John described some of the dangers associated with Antarctic expeditions, including an incident where a crevasse opened below his feet. Two dogs were lost, but thankfully John survived. Suddenly, by adopting the, the, the middle part, they fell into the, into the um, uh, crevasse. Fortunately, the leading dog and fluke and so on were still on that side, and dogs here but three or four fell down, but only two were managed to get out the next morning. Indeed, there were clearly inherent dangers in Rotherer's work, a powerful reminder of which would have been being part of the search team for fellow explorers Black, Statham and Stride when they failed to return back to base. Despite conducting an extensive search, only the team's dogs were found. Dogs they'd had, but most of them turned up at base Y individually over the next few weeks. And the Argentinians down at um, their base informed our base that there were two or three of our dogs running round their, their particular location. So we thought, well, those dogs didn't just bite themselves off the trace. Somebody cut them loose at the last moment. They must have done. Despite inhospitable conditions and reminders of human mortality, Rothera looked back on his time in Antarctica fondly. You, you, you can never forget what, what you experienced and what you saw and so on. And I think also, I knew I was going to the Antarctic. I was still taken by surprise when I got there how, how beautiful it was really. And the colours, the blues and the art. Oh, there's amazing purples in the ice and the icebergs and so on. You just tend to think, oh, it's just white and black, but it isn't. There's a tremendous amount of um, colour in the Antarctic. Despite departing Antarctica over 60 years ago, Rotherer's impact on the continent can still be felt to this day. 
During his deployment, John mapped a sheltered isthmus on the southeast tip of Adelaide Island that was ideal for landing ships and big enough for an aircraft runway. The point was named after him, and a permanent base was established there in the mid-1970s. It has since grown to become the launch pad for most UK expeditions onto the Antarctic ice sheet. The university's very own Professor Andrew Shepard has been to the base himself. I was lucky enough to be stuck there for a month in 2008, he told me. It was one of the most memorable experiences of my life. I learned much of what I know about working in polar environments, including how to collect ice cores and rescue colleagues, and also how to ski, albeit badly. The base is renowned among polar and climate scientists for its strategic value, for the long-term record of measurements that have been collected there, and for its beauty. And it's a wonderful memorial to a courteous and adventurous geographer from the University of Leeds. John Rotherer passed away in April this year. It is impact on the Antarctic landscape will be felt for generations to come. Current University of Leeds history student Tom Davy there uh, reporting on John Rotherer. And Tom is with us now. Tom, how are you doing? Hello, good, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting piece to work on and research. It was uh, something that I hadn't particularly looked into before. And just finding out about John Rotherer's work really fascinated me over the past couple of weeks. He's got one of those voices as well, didn't he, John, where you could you could just listen to what he had to say. So when he when he spoke, it was quite encapsulating. And you're like, oh, what's what's he going to say next? But yeah. what an amazing thing that he yeah. achieved as well. Yeah, very wise. Uh, certainly had a lot of stories to tell. I couldn't help but think like this is such a brave decision to explore Antarctica without any recent technology. So how much of a risk do you think it was to undertake this expedition, especially in the 1950s? Uh, yeah, well, really, Rotherer was one of the, the last few to explore Antarctica prior to satellite imaging in that area. So really, he was working off the same kind of equipment and measurements people would have, uh, people like Shackleton would have used. And in fact, they used maps and things from the 1900s to kind of chart the places where they'd already discovered and things like that. And indeed, it was a very dangerous task. Uh, I said in the in the piece that there was a case where a crevasse opened up below him and some of his dogs got dragged into it and he was lucky to escape. And another piece that I, I didn't even get to talk about was the fact that uh, he was snowed in one day when he was meant to be getting in a helicopter. Uh, however, if he had gotten into that helicopter, it, uh, it crashed that very day and um, it could have been a very different end to his uh, story. So indeed, uh, it was one of those things where it's very dangerous work. But I'd say he seemed uh, rather... Rather okay with it. I think he was um, he was just encaptured by Antarctica and all its beauty because I think that was the main kind of takeaway I got from his uh, descriptions of the uh, landscape. He really sort of painted the picture, didn't he, of the purples and the colours and things that you might yeah. not imagine or, or realise that by being there. But yeah, really interesting, Tom, and thanks for doing that. And I guess if anything's going to prepare you for some uh, cold weather in Antarctica, it's a nippy lead yeah. sort of Tuesday going into study geography anyway, isn't it? So it probably held him in good stead. <laughs> yeah, very much so, very much so. <laughs> Tom, thank you very much. Thanks for being part of Forever Leads. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> pleasure to be on. Finally, we've looked at the past and present of Leeds, but what about the future? The alumni and development team keep students connected to the University of Leeds and our global community of alumni, sharing tips and advice and helping them keep that Leeds feeling forever. And it's summer, which means graduation time. So we've brought together some of this year's graduates to find out about what their time in Britain's best university has meant to them. Welcome everyone. So why don't you introduce ourselves? 
Hi everyone, I'm Carmen and I'm from Malaysia. I've just finished my undergraduate degree in accounting and finance. Nice to meet you all. Hey Carmen. I'm George. Uh, I'm 22. I've just finished studying criminal justice and criminology at the University of Leeds. Lovely to meet you all. Nice to meet you, George. Hey guys, my name is Ahmed. I have just finished my master's in computer science with artificial intelligence in September 2020. And I'm originally from Cairo, Egypt, and I've been in Leeds here for both of my undergrad and the master's. Well, let's start with Carmen. Carmen, how are you first and foremost? Yeah, I'm doing fine, thank you. I'm just in Leeds right now, enjoying this summer. <laughs> Absolutely, congratulations on your graduation. It's funny, because when I was at Leeds Uni, after my second year at Leeds Uni, I went travelling around Malaysia, and you're uh, you're over here in Leeds, so we've we've both done the reverse trip. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, you'd never been to the UK before at all when you chose Leeds and you came over. That must have been just a, a massive moment when you stepped off a plane and into a new place for the first time and, and found yourself in Leeds. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I was, while I was applying for a university in Malaysia, I was um, a little bit worried about what's it going to be like when I study here because I'm afraid of the culture shock and everything. But once I set foot in Leeds, when I just arrived here, um, on, I think I can remember the exact date uh, on the 14th of September, just two weeks before my course start date I, I felt like it was okay because all my worries were kind of gone I just have to take everything um, when, when when there's an issue I can just solve it as they come and everyone was pretty friendly here and whenever I need support I can just send an email to the um, university support team and they'll be able to help me out so I feel I felt very welcome and I still feel very welcome here so yeah it was amazing uh, well you very much also I know um I know that being from Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur, I know how proud you are of your cuisine over there. How have you found it over <laughs> here in Yorkshire? What did you uh, What did you experience for the first time? Um, about food, I was enjoying the um, Yorkshire food and the British food uh, in the first few weeks. But after a while, I kind of missed home cooked food, so I started cooking more and more often. I started having. Um, uh, meals at Asian restaurants that we have around here in Leeds City Centre which is very great because um, one thing I really like about Leeds is that uh, we have different cuisines here so it really helps with my homesickness sometimes and sometimes it, I'm, I might even crave for Indian food or even crave for um, just a Malaysian food like curry mee and nasi lemak so I can just go to a Malaysian restaurant or just a Chinese restaurant and have sort out my craving so it was pretty great because because of the variety here we have and I am able to just be happy and um, deal with the homesickness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you can only have Yorkshire put sort of a few days on the trot and then after that, you've got to move on to something else anyway, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, George, how are you? Not too bad. How's yourself? I'm good. Thank you. Your background is quite interesting. University wasn't really on the cards for you, was it? Uh, no, not at all. I guess I kind of came from quite an unconventional uh, place when I was younger. Yeah, I attended special school. Uh, I had quite bad anger problems when I was young. So yeah, never really anticipated coming to university. But I kind of, uh, through meeting the right people and, and, and kind of gaining inspiration from those people, you know, teaching figures, um, that kind of strove me forward to push for university. And, and that's, of course, what I did. I wanted to study criminal justice and criminology really because of the teaching and those figures, those teaching figures that I met along the way, uh, they kind of inspired me uh, and also my with my background to go forward, take this degree and kind of arm myself with the ability to help others, especially within the, the penal system. You know, university appealed to me as well because it opened the option for me to go into further academia, 
all them kind of career paths kind of collided for me and, and made it a really, really um, interesting option. George, you won a scholarship to Leeds that is fully funded by the university's alumni. That surely must have been a big help to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, the scholarship was, was really, it was integral to me, not only just getting to university, but settling in. A lot of people I know, they have to not just move to a new place, but they have to consider how they're going to fund it. You know, are they going to have to work? All these kind of factors. But for me, having the scholarship meant that I could kind of just get to university, knuckle down, focus on my, my uh, academia, um, and, and focus on, on socializing get, and, and settling into to the Leeds area as well, which was great. And, and, it, and it pushed me forward, really, to pushing for these opportunities and taking the opportunities that, that I've taken throughout uh, my three years. Uh, George, like you're, you're clearly quite modest because you haven't said the results you've come out with. But I mean, it, it, should I say or do you want to say? I mean, who's going to do this? Come on. Uh, okay, I, I, I suppose it's better coming from from the horse's mouth, as they say. Not that I'm a horse, um, <laughs> but I got yeah, I, I got a, a first class with honours, uh, and I got an award for the most significant contributions within the law school uh, to the law school and, and the university, uh, and received a, a lovely one hundred pound cash prize as well, which was great. Great stuff, Jordan. Congratulations on that uh, that graduation because so that's absolutely fantastic. We've also got Ahmed from Egypt, who's with us, another one of our international students. Congratulations on your graduation as well. How are you doing, Ahmed? I'm not bad. Thank you very much. How are you doing yourself? Yeah, really good, thanks. Can you talk to us, please, about artificial intelligence and your dissertation on robotics? Because of all the things that I know very little about, uh, this is right high up there on the list. So that was what you did your dissertation on, right? It's pretty much everywhere now that that's the driving force for any single application you could think of. And everything we do in our lives now, if we use any basic kind of computing for it, then in the future, it will most probably have an artificial intelligence inside of it. Maybe even the programs that we make might be made by artificial intelligence. And that's another part of research. The other reason why I chose to do it at Leeds is because that's one of the biggest fields of research for computing in Leeds and Leeds is actually one of the highest for computer science in the UK and in the world. Having the experience to have worked with people who are leading with research in the world to who have been either my lecturer, my supervisor, my assessor, it was an experience I never really expected to have because that was something that I only see in movies like to me. I'd always imagine people, other people doing that, but I'd never actually imagine myself in that situation. But then seeing myself working with these people who have research that a lot of other students in other universities that have been reading for their own projects or for their own knowledge, it was a mind-blowing experience. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at, Ahmed, is how long is it going to be mm-hmm. before a robot can host a podcast and I'm out of a job? That's that's the key thing I'm trying uh, to find no, out. You're going to have your job for a good time. Oh, <laughs> don't worry right, about that. We're okay for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. For me, I feel like my project is still like five years from happening with a basic functioning robot to actually do everything that I mentioned for my undergrad. So for your job, which is even more complex, that's that's still going to be some time. Don't worry about it. Like two more, two three more generations at least. That's good to know. <laughs> although it's nowhere near as complex as any of us will be making out. <laughs> um, one thing we we really wanted to know from from you all is, and uh, if you could, it's really hard to pick one, isn't it? I'm thinking back to university and to pick one thing. But what is the the one memory or the one thing that you just really loved about the University of Leeds? Uh, yeah, I, I've got to say, you know, it was it was that sitting down in, in, in your first lectures and potentially meeting the, the, your friends for life. You know, I know that was the case for myself. I, I got into my first, uh, I think it was a sociology lecture uh, to start off with. 
Um, obviously, you, you just sit where you sit, really. Sat next to these two lads. We've been friends ever since. They've since moved after graduating, um, but we stay, we keep in contact. I think one of them is going to um, Belgium next year. Yeah, I, I've got plans to go see him. You know, me and, me and my partner are going to go go visit, which is going to be really lovely. Carmen, what about you? So I, what I can remember most fondly is um, when I was in my first year, I was still kind of navigating the campus and I remember on one day of one oh, of a week, I can't remember which day it was already, where I kind of have back-to-back classes. So one lecture in the Maurice Keyword building in the Meets University Business School, then the another one in the conference auditorium next to the edge right after. So I was walking uh, quite fast and I just have to get to the lecture as quick as possible i feel like that's one of the memories that i quite enjoy because it's what makes you feel like a student going classes attending classes in different buildings and um being able to sit in the lecture halls as what george mentioned just now being able to sit in the lecture halls listen to lecturers while having your course mates next to you and you get to have discussions with them and I think you really touched on something there as well, Carmen, is, is, you know, just we've both mentioned it now. And I think it's that the social element, obviously, of university is something that a lot of people are very aware of. But I think that people underplay the kind of um, the fun involved in, in, in kind of in university interactions, um, whereas obviously usually people are thinking about the social element of university being going out to nightclubs, pubs, wherever, going for food, go meeting people outside. But it's, for me, and I, like I say, you know, you've mentioned too, some interactions within university as well and making your friends it, during like lectures and having them talks during lectures and discussions with your friends. I think that's something that's really quite like um, underestimated, kind of underplayed maybe. I, I don't know um, for, uh, for many of you might think of it this way or maybe not uh, because when I was, like I said just now, I've never been to the UK before, so I was worried that the only way to make friends is to go to pubs and nightclub events because that's what I have. <laughs> that's what uh, the, the social life <laughs> yeah. is in my mind when it comes to university uh, life in the UK. So, um, yeah, but when I got here, I was quite, re- I'm very happy and I'm very pleased that um, not only we get to make friends through uh, joining uh, clubs and societies and also um, just sitting next to each other in lectures and seminars because for me I do enjoy um, having like you know events outside at the night but then I do spend a lot more time and a lot more focus on my academic life I I feel very glad that the university does offer this kind of like um, support for us to make friends and so we don't feel alone and we don't feel lonely yeah yeah, hundred percent. And you mentioned societies there, Carmen. I mean, Ahmed, you were involved in what Leeds Bangra Society. Yeah, I've been. I've had my fair share of going to a lot of societies, but out of all the ones I've tried, this is definitely the one that stands out for me. Because the story for that one is weird. After the second year, all of my friends were either doing placement or went to do a year abroad. Mm-hmm. But basically, for me, uh, I had to start meeting new people again and having new friends. Like during that year, a lot of my friends had been going to the Bangor Society and they were like, why don't you join us? I'm like, ah, guys, I don't know. It doesn't really sound like something I know much about or would be interested in. Like, I've tried, don't get me wrong, I've tried a lot of different dance societies during my time at uni. Like, I've been to Salsa Society, I've been to. Uh, I've been to a class by the K-pop society, I think, at some point. 
when I went to the Bunger Society, I just went for one class. Like one day I was sitting at home, having nothing to do, just waiting for them to finish. I was like, you know what? Might as well go join. Like what's the worst that could happen, right? Six months later, I'm on the committee. I'm in the competition dancing and, <laughs> and just competing with, like, with them. And, you know, that was one experience I can never, ever forget. Like definitely I would always say that like since that happened, I keep telling everyone, you know, that one society that you always keep saying, no, I don't really see myself going there. It, it's not really one of my interests or I don't know much about it. I always tell them that's the society you should definitely try because you're never going to know whether it's actually your thing or not unless you try it. I think that's something as well that, that so many people think, where, you know, starting university or even those already attending university could really learn from that kind of attitude, that, that kind of just jump in and do it kind of attitude, um, really proactive kind of frame of mind. You know, I know myself, like some of the best experiences with, with societies have been just from throwing myself in at the deep end, you know, and I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was a sporting society, um, you know, I, I, I joined in the Taekwondo society at one point, or whether it's like a debating society, I think, you know, you're really right. And like the jumping in at the, at the deep end, it's it's the best way to, to get them experiences. That's one of the things that is very underrated in the, uh, in the student experience, because like you and Carmen were saying earlier, Everyone just thinks, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to the pub, meet some new people. And yeah. that's, that's what people imagine that is going to be their own social life in, like, when, when they think about coming to the UK. But what a lot of people don't realize is that as students, there are so many ways you can actually meet new people and so many activities you could try that you never imagined yourself doing. Yeah. A hundred percent, and they're so cheap as well. Like you know, there's like yeah. there's there's you know, a lot. All of the activities are all subsidised, and you know where, yeah. where they're not. There's funds that you can dip into, and your first year really is for that as well. It's for jumping in, getting in there, and just kind of seeing where you feel like you fit in and where you want to go. And you, you don't lose anything from it, you know. In fact, if anything, you're gaining another experience. It's been so nice speaking with you all today, and, and I just thought before we go, and this is almost oh, it might be a bit of a impossible question, but can you sum up? your University of Leeds experience in a few words or a sentence when you look back on those years that you've been in this fabulous place in this amazing city how how would you sum it up what would be the words that you'd use I would say gosh you're right it is quite the impossible question because there's so many factors and so many things to consider but um, if I had to sum it up in in just a few words I'd say fruitful engaging uh, and I'd say varied as well. It's been a very varied experience. I've had lots of different factors to consider as well. So yeah, I'd say they're my three words. Yeah, it's at least two sentences though, uh, George, at least two <laughs> sentences. Um, who, who else would like to top it? Maybe you, Carmen. It's been amazing. And it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience that I'll never forget for being able to study abroad. And the experience and the cultural knowledge that I've learned, that I've gained over here, it's beyond what I've imagined. So for me, I would definitely say that it was very full of different opportunities that if if anyone comes to Leeds or comes to uni and they try to pursue opportunities, their experience is definitely going to have a lot more to offer. These three, four, five years, like depending on however long you study for your courses for, these years will always be unforgettable because for me, it was full of so many unexpected events and just experiences that I've tried. And that's the end of the first edition of Forever Leads. We hope you've enjoyed it. Almost everyone listening to this podcast will be a former or current student at Leeds, and we all know what a huge difference it's made to our lives. 
So if you've enjoyed this podcast and the stories from Leeds graduates past and present, why not consider supporting the university's Footsteps Fund? The fund provides scholarships to hundreds of outstanding students and gives them the financial security they need to take up their places at Leeds. It's all supported by alumni, and since 2004, nearly 16,000 people have donated a total of over £7 million to help talented students get to Leeds. Search Leeds Alumni Footsteps Fund to find out how you can help out too. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening to Forever Leads from me, Alba Goskova. And from me, Rich Williams. And we'll see you next time. Forever Leads is presented by Rich Williams and Alba Goskova. The report on John Rotherer was by Tom Davey. The producer is Andrew Harrison, politics graduate 1990. And audio production is by Alex Reese. Theme tune by School of Music graduate Japji Singh Valencia. Special thanks to Kate Watkins and Andy Irving at the School of Media and Communication. Forever Leeds is a Podmasters production for the University of Leeds alumni team. You can find us on social media at Leeds Alumni or email us at alumni.leeds.ac.uk. Listener.